It's great to be here today. Uh, as Stan mentioned, I am Eric. I work at Watermark Church over in Pakfulam. Greetings from the other side of the harbor. It's great to be here with you today. Uh, when the Apostle Paul writes letters to churches that he's never visited before, a lot of times he'll tell them, I've heard all about the great things that are happening in your church, and I really want to meet you. And I feel sort of like that today, because over the years I've been friends with Mike and Stan and Doug and others from around here and heard about lots of great things that are happening here, but I'm so privileged and thankful to actually be here and get to meet you guys and be with you and see firsthand what God's doing in your church. Also, happy Mother's Day. I know it's been said a bunch of times, but moms are so important and just want to honor you guys, whether you're a physical mom or a spiritual mom, uh, we're so thankful for you and so glad for your contribution. So here at Alliance International Church, you have been going through a series looking at the life of Jesus, looking at what did Jesus do when he was on the earth, and how does that impact the way that we live today? And we're going to look at another scene from the life of Jesus today, but before we jump in and look at the passage itself, I want to ask a question. And the question is, if Jesus is really God... How much of a price should we be willing to pay to follow him? If Jesus is really God, how much of a price should we be willing to pay to follow him? You know, I grew up in church. I'm guessing there's a decent number of people here that also grew up in church. And coming from that background, I've been taught my entire life what to believe about God and how to follow him. But if I'm being honest, sometimes when things don't go the way that I want them to, it's easy to question whether this is really the best way to live. And today we're going to look at a story from the book of Luke where John the Baptist is in that same situation. He's grown up learning about God, knowing exactly what what it means to follow him and how to follow him, and he's done his best to be obedient to what God is calling him to do in life, and things aren't going the way that he expected them to. And he's to doubt. He's starting to have questions. And we're going to look at this and see what Jesus has to say to John and see what Jesus has to say to us through his answer to John. And what we're going to see is that because Jesus is the Messiah and there is no other, it is worth it for us to give up everything for the sake of following him, even our lives. And if you're taking notes, we're going to have three points. We're going to see John's question, we're going to see Jesus' response, and a challenge for us. You have it right up there if you want to write it down. But before we jump in and look at that, I just want to pray quickly, because what you guys need today is not to hear from me. What you need is to hear from God. And so we're going to ask him to speak to us. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and through your Son, Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to speak to us and to open our eyes to be able to see the wonderful, beautiful truth of who you are. And we pray that as we look at your word today, that it wouldn't be me speaking, but that it would be you speaking to us and that you would work in power in our hearts and that you would show us your truth and transform us by your truth and give us a greater, deeper love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, jumping into the passage... We're going to start out with John's question. In verse 19, you can see John's question. He calls two of his disciples to himself, and he has them 
go to Jesus with this message. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, if you're totally clueless about what that means, a little bit of backstory for you. In the Bible, the Israelites are God's people, and throughout the Old Testament, that's the early part of the Bible, God has given tons of promises about this person called the Messiah that he's going to send, who's going to do amazing things and set up God's kingdom here on the earth and rescue God's people. And as the years have gone by, there have been more promises that paint the picture more clearly of who the Messiah is going to be and what he is going to do, but he still hasn't come. And the people are waiting and waiting and waiting. And John the Baptist thinks he knows who the Messiah is. He thinks it's Jesus. And he has some good reasons to think that, but he's starting to doubt. He's not quite as sure as he was before that Jesus is really the one that they have been waiting for. And so he wants to double check. He wants to say, hey, I think that I have this right, but can you just confirm that who I think you are is who you really are? And so he calls two of his disciples, his followers, to go and ask this question to Jesus. And this question from John, it's shocking. It's a shocking question on several levels. The first level, John was a miracle baby sent with a specific purpose to prepare a people who will be ready for God. John was a miracle baby. His parents were very old when they had him. The, the word used to describe his mom's age is used in another place in the Bible to describe someone who's at least 84 years old, maybe over 100. They were old. And an angel appears to his dad and says, you're going to have a kid, and this kid is going to be special. He is going to prepare a people to be ready for the Lord. And they have this kid, and they raise him up, and he becomes this amazing preacher, John the Baptist. Quick side note tangent, because it's Mother's Day. It's very rare for someone to become as godly as John the Baptist was without very godly parents investing in their lives and training them up. And the Bible tells us that John the Baptist had amazing godly parents who had a huge impact on him. And I just want to encourage you, if you're a mom here today, John the Baptist's mom had a huge impact on his life and helped him know what it meant to follow God. And I want to encourage you that the investment you're making in your kids right now, it might feel like just falling on deaf ears, but it's making a difference. And God's going to use it to impact their lives. Back to the passage. So John's a miracle baby, but also John has had miraculous encounters with Jesus. John grows up, he becomes this preacher who is out in the desert preaching, telling people about God's kingdom that's coming, and one day, Jesus comes to him and says, John, you need to baptize me. So John baptizes Jesus, and as Jesus is coming up out of the water, a voice from heaven speaks and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And at that same moment, as John is hearing this voice from heaven say, this is my son, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and rests on Jesus. So John has heard a voice from heaven say Jesus is God's son. That's incredible. John should know 
exactly who Jesus is. He should have zero questions about Jesus' identity because he was sent to prepare a people for the Lord. And then he heard God say, this is who Jesus is. And not only that, but if you look at the context in Luke 7, this question is shocking. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, tells the story of a Roman centurion who had a sick servant. And he sends to Jesus and says, hey, can you heal my servant? And Jesus heals the servant by speaking a word from far away. It's like if he was here and he spoke a word and someone got out of their hospital bed at Queen Elizabeth Hospital, right? He has this incredible, amazing power. And then, as if that's not enough, you go to verse 11 to 17, he's walking into a city, he has a crowd of people behind him, and he raises a widow's son from the dead. Now, we're not going to get super in-depth into this story, but we're going to take a minute to look at it because it's incredible. Jesus has this crowd of people behind him. He's walking into a city, and there's a funeral coming out. Now, I don't care what culture you're from. If there's a funeral coming the other way, the correct thing to do is stand aside and let them pass out of respect for the dead. And Jesus doesn't do that. He is so culturally insensitive, he interrupts the funeral. Not only does he interrupt the funeral, he goes straight up to the mom, the single mom who just lost her only child, and with her only child, her source of income, her retirement account, her standing in society, her physical protection, her only living immediate family member, he goes up to her and says, don't cry. You expect her to slap him, right? So insensitive. So we just like bristle at the thought of anyone doing that to us. And then, as if that's not enough, he goes over to the dead boy's coffin and he puts his hand on it. What? And he speaks to the dead boy and he says, get up. Now, if anything happens in this moment other than the dead boy getting up, Jesus is going to have an angry mob on his hands because he has just offended everyone there. And yet, there's no angry mob because the boy gets up because Jesus has this incredible, amazing, not-from-this-world power that is at work. The people see it and they are amazed and they say, wow, God has come to help his people. And the word starts to spread. And John's followers hear about it, and they they bring the word to John. That's why in the start of verse 18, it says the disciples of John told him about all of these things. They definitely told him about Jesus raising this widow's son from the dead. They probably told him about Jesus healing the centurion servant without even being there, and probably other miracles as well. And if you're John, you've been sent with this specific mission to prepare a people for God. You've heard God's voice say, this is my son. And then you're hearing that he's doing incredible things, raising people from the dead. How should you respond? You celebrate, right? God has come to help his people. This is awesome. He's here. The kingdom is coming. What more could we expect from the one who is to come? And yet, John, what's his response? 
to getting this news. Hey, you, you, come here. Why don't you go to Jesus? Just check something for me. Is he really the one that we're waiting for? What? Of course he is, right? Why would John doubt? What's going on that's keeping John from seeing what's so clear to everyone else around him? Well, there's a couple things. First, yes, Jesus is doing amazing things, but they're not the things that John expected him to do. If you look back at John's preaching when he first comes on the scene, he starts saying things like, I baptize you with water, but after me comes one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And if you look at what he's saying there, he's saying Jesus is going to bring judgment. You know, we've, we've read in the Old Testament about how God is going to judge his enemies and he's going to set up a kingdom for his people that's going to last forever. Jesus is the king who's bringing that kingdom. Jesus is going to raise up an army, kick out the Romans, and become a king ruling on a throne. And he's going to bring judgment to all of God's enemies. And then what's Jesus doing? He's healing people. Where's the army? Where's the judgment, Jesus? I mean, Jesus, you're, you're supposed to be kicking out the Romans and setting up a kingdom of Israel. Don't you realize that healing the servant of a Roman centurion is just accomplishing the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing? You're fighting against yourself. Come on. That's what John is thinking. And not only this, but things haven't quite worked out for John like he expected them to. John is the forerunner to the king. He knows he's nothing in comparison to the king. But oh boy, when that kingdom comes, there's got to be something special waiting for him, right? You know, that, that's how it works. You, you help someone get into their position of power, you recruit people to vote for them and support their cause, and then you become a cabinet member or ambassador. And I'm sure John is anticipating this. When Jesus gets on his throne, I'm going to have a special place. I won't be the king. I don't want to be the king. That's fine. But maybe the secretary of state. That sounds fun. And John's expecting when Jesus comes to his throne, I'm going to, I'm going to get something, some recognition, some honor for my help that I gave to him. And yet, this kingdom that he's been waiting for feels no closer than it was when he first started preaching. Instead of raising up an army, Jesus is homeless. And John, instead of being a cabinet member or an ambassador, is in prison. He's in prison. See, John was excited. He was passionate about this job that he had been given. He said, God's kingdom is coming. God's kingdom, for it to be fully the kingdom that it's supposed to be, we need a people who are prepared to follow God. We need people to turn from their sin and rebellion against God. And so he started going out and telling people, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. When he saw people living in disobedience to God's law, he started to tell them specifically. And one of the things that he saw was that Herod, the Roman ruler in charge of Israel, had stolen his brother's wife away from the brother and convinced her to marry him instead. 
And John said, "Uh uh-uh, God's kingdom is coming. What you are doing has no place in God's kingdom. It is not right for you to take your brother's wife. And Herod did not understand the concept that there's no such thing as bad publicity. They didn't have free speech, and Herod didn't like what John was saying, so he locked John up in prison. And day after day, the questions started to grow. I thought I had this all figured out. Was I mistaken? Did I understand wrong what God said? I thought I heard a voice from the sky saying, Jesus is the one. But maybe I just imagined it. I'm not really sure what's going on here. And every day, the questions grow louder and the confidence fades a bit more. And this is a really important reminder to us that sometimes doubt happens. If it can happen to someone as as strong and godly as John, it can happen to you and me. And it often happens in the everyday situations of life. You know, there's a promotion at work that's up for grabs, and you really want this promotion. You're praying, God, please give me this promotion. And they announce that it's going to your coworker, who has a reputation for stealing credit for other people's work and inflating numbers to make his accomplishments look more impressive to the boss. And we just start to think, really, God? I've been trying to honor you. Why aren't things working out the way that I expected them to? Do you really answer prayer? Are you really there with me? It happens in these small, everyday moments of our lives. And what do we do when that happens? I think John gives us a great example right here. He turns to Jesus with his doubt. He says, I have these questions, I have these doubts, but Jesus knows the answers, so I'm going to trust him to answer me. And so he calls two of his disciples to him. He gives them this question, and he sends them to Jesus. And the disciples of John go to Jesus to ask the question, and Jesus gives them a surprising response. If you're taking notes, we're at Jesus' response. Now, rule number one of good storytelling is show, don't tell. And Jesus does exactly this when John's messengers arrive. They ask the question, and he says nothing to them. It says, at that, at that very time, he healed lots of people. At that very time literally means in that very hour. So what happens is, John's messengers come, and they're like, hey, Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for someone else? And Jesus says, hold on a second, and turns around and ignores them, and heals tons of people. Now, after seeing this, John's disciples probably didn't need any type of response from Jesus, right? They've just seen there is this power at work here that we cannot comprehend. This man is doing something incredible. And even though they don't necessarily need a response from Jesus, he gives them one anyway. It's in verse 22. He says, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, our cultural context might not make us immediately understand what's going on right here, but in the Old Testament, like we said, there were tons of prophecies about who the Messiah would be and what he would do when he came. And Jesus, in his response to John, 
picks a handful of these passages and just throws them all together and says them back. So he, he goes from Isaiah 35, from Isaiah 42, from Isaiah 61, and he just collects all these descriptions of things the Messiah is going to do, and he says, look, you want to know who I am? Read your Bible. It will tell you exactly who I am. John, I am the one to come, and there is no one else. Now, hopefully for most of us here, there's nothing shocking in the fact that Jesus would claim that, right? I mean, that's the same thing the church has been saying about him for the past 2,000 years. But there is something very, very surprising about Jesus' response right here, and it's this. If you look at the first thing he says, sorry, we're off that slide, it's okay. Uh, The first thing he says and the last thing he says, he says, the blind receive sight and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That sort of makes a bracket around the quote and both of those come from the Greek translation of Isaiah chapter 61. So he's sort of saying, I'm picking from a bunch of places, but the main thing is Isaiah 61. Look at Isaiah chapter 61 and you're going to see what I am doing, and who I am. And he actually, in Luke chapter 4, reads from that same passage in verses 18 and 19, and says, this is a description of my ministry. Now, I'm going to read you that passage in Luke chapter 4, and I want you to listen and see what's different about this passage in Luke 4 and the response that Jesus gives to John. You ready for it? He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what do we hear in Luke chapter 4 slash Isaiah 61 that we don't hear in Luke chapter 7 that would be very, very, very important to John? Setting the prisoners free? Freedom for the oppressed? Remember, John's in prison. This is what he wants to know. He wants to know, Jesus, when are you getting me out of prison? He didn't ask that question, but you can hear it. You can hear it behind the question. Jesus, when are you going to get me out of here? And now, Jesus leaving this out isn't necessarily a big deal. If you look at the way the New Testament quotes the Old Testament... A lot of times, they'll just have a couple words or one line that's intended to bring back a whole passage worth of backstory. It's sort of like a hyperlink on a website. You know, you see that one word, and you click it, and it brings you to the Wikipedia page that describes everything about that topic. That's how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament a lot of the time. So it could be Jesus is saying this and expecting John to understand the things that he left out. Or it could be that Jesus is actually saying something different than John wants him to say, right? I mean, it could be included there, but come on, that's a major point to leave out. John is in prison. John wants to know, Jesus, when are you going to rescue me? If you're really who I think you are, please do it soon. And Jesus says, I'm absolutely who you think I am. And then says nothing about getting John out of prison. And I'm sure when John's messengers come back and they tell him, John, this is what Jesus had to say to you. He probably said, is that all? Sure you didn't forget anything? 
Surely there was more. Come on. And John was left wondering, why? Why didn't Jesus include those lines? But he couldn't have wondered for long. Because not long after this, John was pulled out of his prison. His head was chopped off. It was put on a plate and given to a young girl who did a dance that pleased her uncle. John was dead. Now, John never had the perspective that we have to understand Jesus' full answer to him. But because we're in the future looking back, we can see the full message that Jesus wanted John to hear. And it's this. John, I am the one that you are waiting for, but that doesn't mean your life will be comfortable because of it. John, I am the one to come, and there is no one else, but you are still going to die. If you're a Christian here, is that what you thought you were signing up for when you decided to follow Jesus? It's a high price. Is it worth it? Well, let's, let's look in further, deeper, and see the challenge for us. You know, there's actually one more thing Jesus says to John in his response that I left out intentionally when I was first reading. It's in verse 23. He says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, or who does not stumble on account of me. See, it it feels weird initially to read that in Jesus' response. I mean, if Jesus is doing all of these amazing things, why would anyone stumble on account of him? And by the way, what does it mean to stumble on account of Jesus, right? (laughs) But when you see John's situation, when you see that following Jesus will cost him his life, we all of a sudden understand this is a very important line because there are going to be many temptations to stumble on account of Jesus. Think about it. Put yourself in John's shoes. You've been preaching. You've been telling people about Jesus. You said something that offended someone. He locked you up. And you know, if I want to get free from prison, all I have to do is make a public apology. Take back what I said. Say, you know what, Herod? I know I said that you shouldn't marry your brother's wife, but... It's actually okay. It's not a big deal. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Herod's like, cool, we're all good. You can go home. That's all it takes. How many of us, if we were in John's situation, would do that? Would justify it to ourselves by saying, you know, I know I'm I'm giving Herod a free pass, but it's going to let me continue to spread God's word to so many hundreds and thousands more people. I'll compromise what I believe about Jesus to get myself the life that I want. Maybe we say, you know, I'd be willing to stay in prison to stand for Jesus, but what if it was to save our lives? Would we take back what we said we believed about Jesus if we knew that it would keep us from getting our heads chopped off? Stumble on account of Jesus is basically the opposite of to have faith in Jesus. It means to reject him. So a little picture from the Bible of what it looks like to stumble on account of Jesus. At the Last Supper, Jesus is having dinner with his disciples, and he says, all of you are going to leave me tonight. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Even if everyone else falls away from you, I never will. And the word that Peter uses for fall away right there is the same word for stumble right here. 
So later that night, when Peter three times says, I've never met Jesus before in my life, I have no idea who he is. He's stumbling on account of Jesus. We stumble on account of Jesus whenever we remove our faith and hope from resting in Jesus because we don't believe that he can sustain us. What does that look like in our world today? It's when we're ashamed of Jesus and we lie about our trust in him for the sake of self-preservation. It's when we turn from him for the sake of pursuing a more comfortable or convenient life. And Jesus gives this challenge to John. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. And he gives this challenge to John because he knows that John is going to be tempted to give up when things don't get better. And the Holy Spirit has seen to it that this is preserved for us today because he knows that we need to hear this message as well. See, the full message that Jesus is telling John is, I am the one to come. There is no one else. You are still going to die. But if you hold on to your faith in me until the end, you will be blessed. And I think this is a message that a lot of us need to hear today. Jesus is absolutely Lord. There is no one else. Following him can be costly. It might even cost us our lives. But if we hold strong to him until the end, we will be blessed and it will be worth it. And there's nothing that Jesus taught that should make us expect that we're going to have a comfortable, convenient life now for following him. He, he actually said, if anyone's going to come after me, he must take up his cross. We, we have it nice right here as a decoration. We like to wear it as a necklace. That's not what it was in his day. It was an instrument of execution. He said, take up the thing that's going to be the cause of your death and carry it with me every single day. He didn't say, grab your lazy boy, grab your massage chair, grab your Tempur-Pedic mattress. He said, grab your cross and follow me. If you're following me, you're going to die. Maybe physically, like John, maybe it's a death to ourself and our own desires every single day. And one of the scariest things to me about the state of Christianity in the world today is that there are so many people teaching the exact opposite of this. Lots of the biggest churches in the world are led by people who say, hey, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and comfortable and, and to just have this amazing, comfortable, blessed life right now, right here. If you just pray the right prayer, have enough faith, give enough money to my ministry, God's going to give you your dream house, your dream job, your dream spouse, your dream children, and your dream car, all on the same day. Maybe you'll spread it out over a week. But people are saying this, and there are buildings being filled with people who are believing these lies that are going to kill us if we adopt them as what we believe about God. These lies are going to kill us if we believe that they are true about God. See, if we're going to live lives for Jesus and not stumble on account of him, we need to understand the path of following Jesus will not be easy, but it will absolutely be worth it. So I want to take the rest of our time today to look at the cost of following Jesus in our world and to challenge the same way that Jesus challenged John and say, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of Jesus.
So you may or may not have noticed, the world around us generally, not a fan of Jesus. They like the idea of like a God or spirituality or some type of divine presence. But once we say Jesus, only Jesus, it's a good conversation killer. Now, as back then, living a life in pursuit of Jesus can be very costly. For some of us, it may cost us a job because we're not willing to compromise what we know is right for the sake of making the company a little bit more money. For some of us, it, it may cost us our lives. I don't know. For some of us, it might cost us opportunities at romantic relationships because we're not willing to compromise and date that person that God's word says we shouldn't be dating. For all of us, it's going to mean persevering through difficult situations with our hope fixed on Jesus, even when things don't go our way, because he is enough. I'm going to repeat that because it's very important. For all of us, it will mean persevering through difficult situations with our hope fixed on Jesus, even when things don't go our way, because he is enough. I'll tell you what this looks like in my life right now and what God's been saying to me as I prepare for this. You may have noticed when my wife and I came in today, we had no children with us because we don't have children. I would love to have children. I don't know if we'll be able to. And as I've been preparing for this sermon, the big question that God's been asking me is, Eric, if I never give you kids, am I still enough? And I know it's Mother's Day. It's a day when a lot of us probably struggle with this question. If God never gives us the kids that we want, is he still enough? I know a lot of us maybe don't struggle with that question, but we have other questions that are equally big, maybe even bigger, struggles in our lives. And my question for you today, if if Jesus doesn't give you what you want in those areas of your life, is he enough? Is it still worth it to follow him? I think it is. I recognize it can be easy to stand up on stage and say a lot of things that are really difficult to live in everyday life. But there are two things I want to leave us with in closing that are going to encourage us, hopefully, to follow Jesus in this coming week and not stumble on account of him. The first is that Jesus is not asking us to do anything for him that he hasn't already done for us. See, the whole story of the Bible is a story of God sending his son to the earth to rescue us when we were his enemies. And this rescue wasn't a a convenient, comfortable rescue. No, it involved his death. His death for us because we rebelled against God. Jesus did that because he loves you and he loves me. And it's only after he has done that to rescue us that he calls us to suffer on account of him. Jesus has the right to call us to potentially suffer for him. Not potentially. If we live long enough, we're all going to suffer. He has the right to call us to suffer for him and to trust in him, to trust that he is enough because he suffered for us first. And the second thing is that it's worth it to continue and trust in Jesus because our suffering is not the end of the story. And if we endure, we will be blessed time at verse 23 with me. I want to show you something. Look at what Jesus says to John. Actually, let's look at what he doesn't say to John. 
He doesn't give a simple command. John, don't stumble on account of me. He could have done that. He doesn't give a threat. John, if you stumble on account of me, things are going to go bad for you. Could have done that. But he doesn't. He offers John a blessing. John, blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. If you continue, if you stay strong, if you hold fast to me and me alone, if you love me more than you love your life, you're going to be blessed. The story of the Bible, like I said, is a story of God rescuing a people for himself, of God taking this broken world that we live in and making it new, of making us new in that process. And the end of the story is a, story, is a new heavens and a new earth where God lives with his people forever as their God. There's no more pain. There's no more tears. There's no more crying. We may have to suffer and sacrifice to follow him now, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is us with him in glory. And it's a glory that's only brighter and more brilliant because of the suffering that we endure on the way to get there. Jesus is absolutely Lord. There is no one else. Following him, it's going to be costly. But he is enough. And if we hold fast to him, we will be blessed. Let's pray.